If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll be hearing from the author and journalist Rosie Whitehouse. Rosie's most recent book, The People on the Beach, tells the story of a group of Holocaust survivors who boarded a ship from Italy to Palestine in 1946, taking on the might of the Royal Navy in the process. She spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Rosie, especially in recent times, there have been a large number of books written on the Holocaust. But this is a story that I mean, I certainly haven't come across before, and I don't imagine many of our listeners would have done. So how did you first discover it, and why do you think it's remained relatively hidden? I uh, was researching a guidebook to the Italian Riviera, and uh, I'm interested in post-war Italian history. So I began to click on the names of the towns, uh, putting in 1945, 1946 afterwards. And I was amazed that when I put in Savona, 1946, up popped this story um, about this illegal immigrant ship which arrived at the tiny port of Vardo, which is next to uh, Savona, um, in the middle of the night and spirited away over 1,000 Holocaust survivors. I thought this is an extraordinary story. Um, We have, as a family, long connections with Liguria and my father-in-law was in shipping in Liguria. So when I began to ask family friends about this story, I was amazed to actually just see people's complete blank faces. And nobody knew anything about it. And as a journalist, I immediately realised that this was actually a really good story. Um, So the first thing uh, that I did is that I went to the beach. Now, We have said this beach is on the Italian Riviera, but don't get any ideas about glitzy Portofino. Vardo is a really workaday port, and it's where you go to catch the car ferry to go to Corsica. And the beach is still there, and on the beach I met a fisherman who remembered this boat leaving. Uh, I drove away from the beach, assuming that I would go home, I would go on my computer, I would go on Amazon, and in one click I would buy a book which would explain the whole thing to me. No. In the end, I had to drive thousands of miles and I had to read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books uh, and interview well over 100 people in order to put this story together. Now, you ask me, why is this story being forgotten? This is something that has bothered me throughout the years of researching the book and still it still intrigues me because it became clear to me as I was <clears throat> researching this story that it was actually... It was part of a wider story of how and why the Jews left Europe after the war. And the simple answer is not the Holocaust. So it became even more intriguing because it was clear it was the linchpin between the Holocaust and the founding of the State of Israel. And it was a very strange story to have been forgotten. Um, there are a number of, of reasons that will become clear, I think, as we as we have our conversation about, about the book, uh, as to why it was forgotten. Um, but I think one of the reasons that we've forgotten it here in the UK is that it's another piece of embarrassing empire history that we prefer not to think about. Because Britain was in control of the Palestine mandate 
from after the First World War until the founding of the State of Israel. And it was a little bit of a sorry story, and it became quite a nasty story um, in 1939 when Britain introduced the white paper, which severely restricted Jewish immigration to the Palestine mandate on the eve of the Second World War. Now, after the after the war, um, during the election campaign of 19, the summer of 1945, the Labour Party repeatedly promised on the hustings that they would reform this white paper and that uh, they would allow the Holocaust survivors to go to Palestine. Now, when they took office, they did not, um, largely for uh, geopolitical reasons concerning the empire. And uh, it meant that it pitted the British government against the Holocaust survivors who believed that their only place of safety was going to be in the Palestine mandate. And uh, the Royal Navy was put in, I think, actually a very difficult position of having to blockade the Palestine coast. And any of the illegal immigrant ships, like the one that I've written about, the Josiah Wedgwood, who tried to smash their way through this blockade were uh, boarded by British Marines. And uh, and it, these uh, the boarding of these ships was actually quite brutal, and the survivors fought back. It's difficult because it puts these Marines in... In, a, in the role of the bad boys in history. And I think that that's actually also very unfair on them because many of those men said later that they they were very uncomfortable about having to do this. And many members of the British Army actually helped the survivors and were supporting the creation of a, of a, of a Jewish state in Palestine. So, and obviously this is quite a big question, but why did these Holocaust survivors feel that they had to make it to Palestine? Why did they no longer want to return to their homes in Europe? Um, yes, I, I agree. It's, it's a simple question to ask, but it's a complicated one to answer. Um, we have to remember that Eastern Europe had been the scene of total war, particularly when we start to talk about Poland. Uh, the country had been devastated beyond comprehension. And the when the Nazis had invaded Poland, they had shot the elites of all the villages and towns. Now, these included Poles, these included Jews, and in certain parts of the country, it included Ukrainians. So the leadership, the teachers, the doctors, the lawyers, the people who say, now, guys, we've got to, we've got to do the right thing, we've got to do the moral thing here, were totally eliminated. The leadership fled either to London or to Moscow, depending on their political leanings. And so we see the Polish people, in that sense, rudderless. And we have to remember that Poland was a lot bigger and spread much further east than it does today, right into what we now call Western Ukraine. And the people were very poor in Poland. Those who lived in the cities were largely... Uh, very poor working class people, and, and in the countryside they were peasants. Now, it meant that when they knew the Jews had been taken away, and we have to make this quite clear because I think sometimes people, particularly in the UK, don't understand this, that people actually knew what was happening. They knew the Jews were being taken away to be murdered, and the knowledge of what was happening in the extermination camps like Trebinka and Belzec was, was known all over the area. So if your neighbour was Jewish and they were taken away, you knew they weren't coming back. Now, that just imagine whole winter, the country is devastated, there's nothing to eat, you've got nothing to heat your home. Are you actually going to leave their winter coats hanging in the wardrobe? No, you're not. You're going to go and take them because it's, this is a battle for survival. And in that sense, the Nazis managed to implicate the local population 
into the Holocaust because when the Jews came back, you'd either moved into their house because they were slightly better off than you and they had one more bedroom and, uh, you know, why not? These people are dead. Um, and if one survivor then came came back from that family, you were actually going to slam the door in their face because what the hell were you going to say? So it's from these very small things grew a, a deep hatred and a suspicion of the returning survivors. And um, also, as you move further to the east, into areas like Western Ukraine, you begin to see that there's actually a civil war on the ground in which the Jews are caught. Because uh, in Western Ukraine, there was um, a fierce battle that went on into the 1950s between the Soviets and the Ukrainian nationalists. And the Ukrainian nationalists were ethnically cleansing the region in order to assert their authority. That meant that they were they wanted the Jews out, they wanted the Poles out, they wanted anybody who was not Ukrainian out. And that made it an incredibly dangerous place uh, for Jewish people to be, and we have to say it for Polish people to be in, during this period. And is, is another part of the story the fact that certainly in some parts of Eastern Europe, the local populations were actually complicit in the Holocaust. Yes, they, they were complicit in the Holocaust because the situation changed on the ground um, with the Nazi invasion of Poland because we see the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in which Poland is divided between, between Germany, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Now, it meant that in those areas which were uh, given to the Soviet Union, and that the Jews actually welcomed the arrival of the Soviet Union because, and many, many people from uh, those areas uh, controlled by the Nazis fled further east into safety. And it made it look to the local population that the Jews were complicit in this occupation. Now, we have to remember, as I just said, that this occupation was a Soviet occupation in which uh, national feeling was, was, was being stamped out because there was already an element that it was clear that particularly in the, in the Baltic states, um, talking this case about Lithuania here in reference to my book, um, that, the, that it pitted the local population against the Soviet occupying forces. And then when you see that the Jews are sympathetic to the occupying forces because they're protecting them, um, it means that the, it means that Jew equals 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 communism equals bad. Uh, and this actually changed the local dynamics on the ground in a very toxic way. And so, as you said, a lot of these Jews didn't feel comfortable returning to their homes. So what did actually happen to these Holocaust survivors across Europe? Was there any kind of plan from the occupying authorities to look after them? What, what was supposed to happen to them? There was no plan. And I think that we have to reassess some of the some of the assumptions that we make here, because we, if you say the word liberation in reference to Jewish people, into everybody's mind listening to this podcast will probably float an image of Auschwitz, an image of people standing in striped pyjamas against a fence. We may even float into our minds the date, the 27th of January 1945, which we now have as Holocaust Memorial Day here. Now, the liberation actually begins in February 1944 in a town called Rivna. Now, I don't think that floated into anybody's head. Most people in Britain have not heard of the town of Rivna, which was known um, in Polish as Rovna. It was uh, a Polish town until 1939, and it was the most easterly part of Poland, and it was the first Polish town to be liberated by the Red Army. And at this point, the 
Soviet authorities hadn't decided exactly where the new borders of the Soviet Union were going to be. And they had other things on their mind. They were busy pressing, pressing further and further westward. So they left the citizens of, of Rivna to decide what they wanted to do. They, and that meant that if you wanted to leave Rivna, you were free to do so. Now, at first, the Jews crowded into the city of Rivna, which had been a predominantly Polish and Jewish city before the Second World War. And they thought that they could rebuild their lives there, despite the fact that well over 20,000 Jews had been massacred by the Nazis in what's known as the Second Baba Yar. And they believed that they could start again. On the civil war on the ground became so dangerous that the partisans decided that they would try to lead the people out. Now, it's a very interesting thing, again, challenges another assumption that we have, is that when we think of Jewish resistance, we think of partisans in the forest. And this is resistance that continues after the war. The partisans are now leading their people out of a dangerous situation. And this is, they left Rivna in the late summer, early autumn of 1944. The gas chambers at Auschwitz are in full fettle at this moment. Just imagine how desperate you had to be to decide that you were going to cross war-torn Europe in this most dangerous of moments. It, it, it illustrates to you, I think, how dangerous it was on the ground at this point. And so the partisans emerge as the first leaders who lead their people out, and they lead them as far as they possibly can. And once we come, we begin to see uh, the war coming to an end in, in, the cent in Central Europe in April, May 1945, they begin to lead them into Austria and into Germany. And you asked about organised allied assistance. Yes, that's exactly what they thought they were going to get. But when they arrived in the American-occupied zones of Austria and uh, of southern Germany, they actually met with complete and utter indifference. At first, all survivors were classified by nationality. So if you were a Jew from uh, Poland or Ukraine or Romania, you were put in the same, the same dis displaced persons camp as, as the nationals with you who'd been taken as slave labour. So you were often also could end up with those people who'd been used as guards in concentration camps, who had actually been your persecutor. And it took a long campaign led by uh, a young American rabbi called Abraham Klausner to have the Jewish survivors classified as their own nationality. And when that happened, it actually, it was actually a seminal moment in Jewish history because it's the first time Jews are actually recognised as their own national, national group. Um, and the American army were on the whole actually, I mean, although the, they had many Jewish soldiers within it, the, com the command was extremely anti-Semitic. General Patton, who was, in, who was in charge of the occupying forces in Bavaria, was a renowned anti-Semite. So then where does this idea come from to, to go to Italy and take this boat to Palestine? How, how does that come about? Well, we see coming out of the people and expressed through the those who became their leaders, the partisans, that there was no future for them in Eastern Europe. It's reinforced by a series of pogroms which happened in Poland in 1945 and 1946. Now, they get to the American zone. You, if you stay in these displaced persons camps, it looks as if you have no future because there was severely restricted uh, immigration to, to the UK, to France, to America, to Canada. The 
the gates of the world were still closed to you after after the liberation. So you have very little choice of anywhere to go. And the Red Cross did a survey of survivors in which they asked them for their preferences of where they would like to go. And they wrote first Palestine, and then they wrote second gas chambers. It shows you the, the feeling among them that this was the only place that they could go. And obviously, in order to get there, you've got to get to the coast. You've got to get to the Mediterranean. Uh, at this point, I don't think even that most people hadn't thought this through very clearly about how they were going to get there. There had been illegal immigration to Palestine in the 1930s because even prior to the White Paper, it was extremely difficult uh, for Jewish people to settle in in the Palestine Mandate. You had to you had to jump through endless hoops, and you had to prove that you had large sums of cash before you were given uh, given the paperwork to settle there. Um, so there had been illegal immigration, which had begun in small boats. So people knew about this and, uh, and, uh, and they believed that, you know, they could maybe just even sneak aboard a ship to get there. And so that people flooded over the Alps into Italy. 70,000 Jew, Jewish Holocaust survivors uh, arrived in Italy after the liberation. And how did you go about tracking down the individuals who boarded this ship and tracing their lives afterwards? Well, that was, it's, again, a simple question to ask, but it took years and years of, of research to, to do this. I mean, firstly, it was an illegal immigrant ship. I mean, when the day after I went to the beach in Vardo and had discovered this story, I started searching online trying to find a passenger list. And uh, my daughter, who was then working for UNHCR, goes to me, Mommy, are you a fool? This is an illegal immigrant ship. They don't write down people's names who are, who are on kind of boats like this. And then I realised, oh, God, yes. And, and then I thought, I will never find these people's names. But uh, fortunately for me, but unfortunately for the people on the beach, when they arrived in Haifa, they were taken by the British to the Atlet Detention Centre, which uh, was surrounded by barbed wire and watchtowers, which uh, uh, you can just imagine the horrific moment that you arrive in the promised land and you're in a, an internment camp. And they wrote down everybody's name. They wrote down their names, their country of origin and their date of birth. That didn't really solve my problems because uh, many of the people had changed their names um, while they were on, on the boat. They had adopted uh, Hebrew names and some people, some of the women had married, so they no longer had their maiden name or their previous married name. Um, and for some very strange reason, the Romanians on the boat had their names turned into Slavic names. So Abramovici became Abramovich. I have no idea why that was, um, but it, it, it's although I had the names, it was very complicated. And then this is also part of it. The, the Nazis took away people's names. They they gave they gave the Jews in concentration camps numbers. And so it was important to give them more than their name back. It was to give their identity back. So it meant that I spent hours and hours and hours on on the internet looking for these people. Now, in the last few years, uh, many, many of the archives around the world have been digitalized. And so if I had discovered this story 10, 15 years ago, I, I, I would never have been able to find these people. Um, it, it's thanks to modern technology that I was able to do this. And here's one example. Um, we've been talking about Rivna. Well, one of the people on the boat came from Rivna. So I was absolutely determined to find him. Um, he was also the youngest person who sailed on the boat. And uh, I hunted for this man for about 18 months. 
endlessly looking for him. And eventually I decided that I don't speak Hebrew, but I decided I was going to have to search in Hebrew. It's obvious because the vast majority of these people remained in Israel. And uh, eventually I found a picture of him in a newspaper and he was standing next to what appeared to be his granddaughter and it gave her name. She appeared to be getting some award during her military service. So I went on Facebook and I opened up Facebook on my phone and I had it next to my computer screen where I had the picture of them in the newspaper. And I went through all the people who had the same name on Facebook. And eventually when I decided that this was the right girl, I wrote her a note and uh, I was very lucky. Bingo. I, I, you know, I, I actually discovered, uh, uh, that her grandfather through her. And so, yes, it was a very complicated process, but one which really required modern technology. And having done all this research into the passenger passengers on the boat, did anything strike you about the composition of the people on board? Yes, immediately. I mean, immediately, even before I'd found many of their identities, I was able to add them up. Uh, the vast majority of them came from Poland. Now, Obviously, before the uh, before the Holocaust, the vast majority of Jews lived in Poland. But I, I had a feeling that this was not just the reason. As, and as I've already explained, the situation on the ground in Poland saw perhaps the most dramatic seed change uh, during the war. Uh, obviously, there were far more men than there were women because uh, men, young men, were the, had the highest survival rates among the Jews. The, I just mentioned Jitzak Kaplan, who was the youngest person on the boat. Well, he was born in 1930. He was 16 when the boat set sail. Now, that's because the vast majority of children were murdered in the Holocaust. 1.5 million Jewish children were murdered. There were very few elderly people on the boat. And by elderly, I'm saying anybody over the age of 40. Uh, not only did they have uh, far lower survival rates than uh, than young, uh, vigorous uh, uh, men who could be taken into slave labour. Um, but also, they weren't actually the kind of material you wanted to have to build this new nation. Because the people who sailed on the Josiah Wedgwood and sailed on all of these illegal immigrant ships uh, were selected by the Jewish underground. And they were deliberately selecting people who would build the new state uh, of Israel. So it also on the boat were a high number of partisans. And the it wasn't simply that they took this leadership role and became the leaders of the illegal, uh, illegal underground, but it's also that these were people who knew how to fight. They were Jews. These were Jews with guns. And this is what they this is what the, the Jewish agency wanted. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And he said to me, I left Europe because nobody in Europe wanted me. And now I'm here. People tell me that I shouldn't be here. Where am I supposed to go? Who wants me? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Now, you already alluded earlier to the fact that the British were not at all keen for refugees to arrive at the Mandate of Palestine. So what happens when this ship encounters the Royal Navy in the waters near to Palestine? We don't even have to get close to the waters of Palestine to uh, encounter the British. The British were all uh, were, were all over Italy trying to work out what the Jewish underground was doing. Now, those of you who know the Italian Riviera will know that there's a big port in Genoa. Now, why didn't this boat sail from Genoa? That's a logical place to sail from if you're if you're if you're in uh, western Western Italy. Well, it didn't sail from Genoa because there were British spies all over the tops of the buildings which surrounded the port, which was at in, uh, the port of Genoa was at this time surrounded by a large wall. Um, so they were on all the buildings which could look over the wall into the port to monitor what was going on inside. So Genoa was a no-go area for the Jewish underground. Um, the boat was actually kitted out in the port of Savona, which is still today a port. And that's because at that time, Savona was a, a communist stronghold. And uh, uh, it was much smaller and of less interest to the British. The boat actually sailed from this tiny port of Vardo because it is it is and was a quite obscure little uh, little port with uh, at that time just had one jetty so uh, the uh, and the british were on the lookout all the time for everything that was going on the royal navy were patrolling the coast of italy let alone patrolling the coast of palestine to try to intercept the boat which is one of the reasons that it sailed in the middle of the night and as the boat crossed the mediterranean a journey that took 8 days and i think at this moment just pause for a minute. We've got 1,300 people on a Canadian corvette, famous for its rolling. And that boat was designed to take a crew of about 50. So this boat is heavily overloaded. And none of these people are allowed on the deck, apart from the people who are sleeping on the deck because the boat is so overcrowded. And that was mostly the partisans and the young boys who were sleeping on the deck. And people were kept below waters because if they had a boat with loads of people standing on the deck, not only in the case of the Corvette would it tip over, but the uh, the RAF who were patrolling the skies of the Mediterranean were on the lookout for these boats. So when the boat arrives not far off the coast of Haifa, um, it is intercepted by, by the Royal Navy. And uh, the 
People who are running the boat are well aware of what they need to do. They disable the engines and they order the passengers who are on the deck of the boat to throw weapons overboard because not only was this people running, it was gun running. And what I found actually was very interesting when I spoke to those survivors that I interviewed for my book, that none of them had been forewarned that this was going to happen. And as I just said, this had been going on since the 1930s. Atlit Detention Centre was open well before the Second World War. But this news had not infiltrated into, into Eastern Europe. And or my people were simply not aware of it. I mean, obviously, a lot of those who are alive today were among the younger members of the group. Uh, so, you know, at the age of 16, 17, you might not have taken on board what was likely to happen to you if you got there. But the key thing is that nobody told you. Uh, they had not warned these these young, these young teenagers that that was what was going to happen to them. And I, I think that's absolutely uh, fascinating because they, while they had been in Italy preparing to sail, they'd been being taught Hebrew, they had been being taught Jewish history of the Holy Land, they had been taught how to farm so they could go live on kibbutzes. But nobody had actually mentioned that there was a virtual civil war going on in the ground in Palestine itself. Yeah, so that comes on to the next thing I was going to ask you about, actually, is what kind of reception did these people get when they arrived in Palestine? Because, like you say, there was a virtual civil war going on. The British weren't particularly keen to see them there. How did they kind of adjust to that? Well, there was a very mixed reception, um, largely because the Jewish authorities in Palestine had not really known how to react in the 1930s to uh, to the rise of the Nazis. Uh, they had not really known how to react to what was happening in Europe during the Holocaust. And they were also confused in their reaction uh, to the post-Holocaust world. Now, one of the reasons was that Jewish agency could only sustain a small Jewish community within Palestine. As we've discussed, there was a civil war on the ground. Uh, a huge influx of Jewish refugees was only going to anger uh, the Arab Palestinians. So uh, they're, they're all, the Jewish agency is already walking a tightrope in the pre-war period. During the Second World War, it was again equally the same. Palestine was in the was in the front line. We have to remember this. There were. Uh, major British military presence in Palestine during the war because it, this was the, the troops were there to protect the Suez Canal, to, uh, to protect the access to uh, Arab oil, which was needed for the war effort. Uh, and so Palestine was a, a front line. Remember, we've got Nazi, German and Italian troops pushing all the way across to, to Egypt. You know, there were plans among the Jewish agency of how they were going to save themselves if, uh, if German and Italian troops actually arrived in, in the Palestine mandate. Now, when we see uh, victory in Europe, we see two interesting things going on. Uh, as with all other aspects of the empire, the British uh, had recruited troops on the ground in Palestine. They recruited Jewish soldiers and they formed what's called the Jewish Brigade. Now, this brigade was eventually put into action and fought across North Africa and up Italy. Now, these Jews had 
witness what had happened in in Italy and it helped the Jewish community uh, in Italy get back on their feet. So they were well aware of what was going on in Europe and were very sympathetic to the survivors and went AWOL from the British army to help them. Now, this perhaps gave the survivors, um, not just those that travelled on the Josiah Wedgwood, but the survivors as a whole who were in Italy, a misrepresentation of the welcome that they were going to get when they arrived in the Palestine mandate from those Jews who were already there. Now, when Jews left Europe as Zionists in in the in the first part of the 19th century, they did so as a rejection of Jewish life in Europe. So those they looked down on those people. There was an an, an ideological war going on within the Jewish people about whether you should stay with the old ways in Europe or you should go for the new ways in 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 Palestine so there's already this level of tension between people and then the Jews who had stayed in Europe had very little idea of what life was actually like in Palestine Many of the younger people were more across this because they had been in youth groups in within Europe itself. And then in the post-war period, they had been on what we call training farms, which were uh, kibbutzes. So they were beginning to understand this way of life. But anybody who was slightly older would be very confused by the rules of kibbutz life. So, for example, that you had to be there so many months before you got, to, before you got a blanket, so many months before you got a side table, you had to be there years before you were allowed a wardrobe. I mean, these are rules that would have, would confuse anybody when you arrived. And they, so many survivors thought they were being hard done by, and many of those people lived on the kibbutz thought they were moaning. Now, also, we have in popular culture this uh, view of, of Holocaust survivors as people who were victims, who were weak, who were unable to help themselves. Um, as my book shows, actually, these were they were actually people of tremendous agency. Um, and the people who sailed on the Josiah Wedgwood were very far from, uh, from weak victims, unable to look after themselves. But it isn't only in popular culture that this view existed. This view existed among Jewish people themselves who were living in Palestine. They felt that they were better in a sense i mean it's uh, the, than those people who'd been who'd become the victims of the nazis so how did these um holocaust survivors eventually manage to adjust and kind of fit in better to jewish society within the palestine mandate and later israel those people who sailed on the josiah wedgwood were uh, actually quite lucky because they arrived there um as the as the situation in Palestine was really hotting up. And the uh, the young men and women who were on the boat were immediately recruited into the nascent uh, Israeli Defence Forces. Now, this gave them a special kudos in Israeli society because they fought in the, in the wars which uh, established the state of Israel. Um, it gave them a sense... Uh, a, a mode in which they could integrate, um, but in which they became part of the national story. If you arrived after 1948, of which the vast majority of Holocaust survivors did, you had not brought into the national myth-making of those wars. So um, it was a very important moment that they arrived in 1946. They also arrived at the Josiah Wedgwood was a tipping point in the history of the Palestine mandate because it was the largest boat that had yet set sail from Italy. Until now, we'd seen boats, some very small ones with like 50 to 60 people. The largest had been about 800 people. It sent shockwaves through the through the British government uh, that we'd suddenly got 1,300 people turning up in Haifa. It 
overloaded the Atlet detention centre because it coincided with uh, a crackdown on uh, Jewish nationalist groups in which uh, thousands of kibbutzes were raided and, uh, and many, many people were taken into detention. So it was a very difficult moment for the British authorities in the Palestine Mandate. And after the Josiah Wedgwood, they decided to intern the survivors who tried to get to Israel in Cyprus. So this this is not a particularly noble story for, for Britain, is it? I mean, you know, these people have been through sort of terrible traumas in Europe and really Britain didn't go out of its way to, to help these survivors. No, it didn't. And and one of the things that I found very interesting is when I was interviewing one of the survivors, he told me that he and his friendship group, which numbered about 100 young boys and girls, had been offered visas to come to the UK. Now, uh, as I said before, I don't speak Hebrew and he was speaking in Hebrew and his grandson was translating. And at the time I thought, this is this is some, some mistake here in translation. Why would the British ever be offering visas to young Holocaust survivors? Uh, and then I was very surprised on my return to the UK to discover this story, which... Uh, uh, in which a thousand child Holocaust survivors were offered visas by the Home Office to come to the UK. That group is now known as the Boys. And in fact, I'm now the historical advisor to the 45 Aid Society who represent the Boys and their families. And in the subsequent period, I've developed a, a huge understanding of what was going on in the British government. And it, it it's actually very obvious when you put it that you've got the Foreign Office on one hand and the Ministry of Defence and you've got the Home Office on the other. It's exactly what we see today. We can see people uh, people giving money to help refugees and we can see the, uh, for the Home Office saying, no, we don't want them. There's this dichotomy in government the whole time. So, uh, yes, it, but you have to understand the bigger picture. There were there was this uh, very noble effort by uh, by. British Jewry to help British Jews, they managed to persuade the uh, the Home Office firstly to hand over the visas for kinder transport and then to hand over a thousand visas for child Holocaust survivors. A uh, thousand doesn't sound very much when I've been talking about figures like 70,000 Holocaust survivors flooding into Italy. But when these figures were drawn up and they were drawn up officially among the Allies, at first it was believed only 5,000 Jewish people had survived in Europe. When they revised these figures, they actually believed that 5,000 children had survived. We now know that probably about 180,000 children survived, but they didn't know this at the time. So when they believed that 5,000 children survived and 1,000 visas were going to be given by Britain, 1,000 by France, 1,000 by Canada, 1,000 by Sweden, 1,000 by Switzerland, it all seemed pretty fair at the time. So yes, there's a dichotomy within government. And I think that as in... All, I was talking about national myth-making in, in Israel. Well, we have national myth-making here. Our huge national myth is kinder transport. And that's what we like to teach our children in school. And we don't teach them this story. Well, largely because it's 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 very complicated. But also, it, it doesn't make you feel proud as a nation. And uh, I also say that we, we have the memorial to kinder transport in London at to Liverpool Street Station, where we show the children with their little teddy bears and suitcases. But we should really have next to that an empty plinth on which is written the question, why couldn't their parents come too? And when we begin to understand this and what was actually going on in Britain at the time, then I think that we will have some kind of reconciliation within historical fact of historical facts in the UK. Now, as you've alluded to already, you, you have met some people who sailed on this ship. What was the experience like of meeting them and how do they look back on what happened 75 years ago? 
interestingly enough, to them, the boat journey uh, was not the most significant moment in their lives. Um, and they did not gel together as a group because they came from many different uh, different displaced persons camps within Italy. Um, so some of them had gelled into these very, very strong friendship groups, uh, particularly the child Holocaust survivors here that we're talking about who sailed on the boat. Um, but the, the, the gelling moments in their lives, either before when they after the liberation or when they arrived in Israel. So many of these support friendship groups, which had developed within the ghettos and then the camps, carried on. And these, these, these young people supported themselves when they were in the, in, in the army in Israel. And they continue to be friends today. But uh, the, the experience of leaving, I think, for them was really one of rejection and when I went to meet one of them who had, he had been in hiding and it, during the Holocaust. Uh, when he came out of hiding, the the local Poles were, were killing the, the Jewish survivors who were coming out of hiding. And he fled from Poland. And he said to me, I left Europe because nobody in Europe wanted me. And now I'm here. People tell me that I shouldn't be here. Where am I supposed to go? Who wants me? And I think that this is a story of rejection. And we we have to address this question uh, as to why the Jews were rejected. And um, finally, how, how do you think this story should change or shape our understanding of the Holocaust and the years that followed it? Well, firstly, I can tell you from a personal point of view how it changed my understanding. Um my husband's family have a Holocaust story in their family. And when you come uh, with your own family baggage like this to start to study the Holocaust, you, you think you understand it and you think you know everything about it. But as a rabbi in Rivna told me that when you actually really start to try to understand what happened in the Holocaust, the stories become more unimaginable they become more horrific and you really keep thinking that you've you can't it can't possibly get any worse but i mean i've i've spent now five years uh studying the lives of varying holocaust survivors and writing about them and there really are days when you you just you just have to get up and walk away from your desk but what that teaches you is is not only the capacity that we have for evil, but it teaches you that Holocaust is sometimes its worst enemy. It is so complicated. It is so nuanced. And individual responses to the Holocaust from not only the Jewish people who, who survived or who perished in it, but those who were witnesses or complicit within it are so complicated and nuanced that you can actually begin to say, no, no, it's just not possible. This can't possibly have happened. It's so unfathomable that it's easily deniable. And I think that that is the problem that we now face as Holocaust survivors will no longer be with us in 10 years. In 10 years' time, I couldn't have written this book. That I have to be honest about that. It was a window of opportunity. But as this memory goes into popular culture, we have to really assess ourselves as to what we're actually choosing to remember about it. And that's why I feel that my book is, is very timely, because it's a forgotten story of the Holocaust. And if 
if I hadn't got in now with this story, it, it would never have been remembered. It would have literally faded out of history altogether. So yeah, so why why do you feel then that, that this story hasn't been written about before? Why is yours the first book on this subject? Well, for many of the elements that we've covered in the discussion, firstly, the fact that it's a, uh, it's an embarrassing British Empire story. And as we know from Black Lives Matter, that these stories tend to be forgotten. Um, we've also crossed over the fact that uh, the Jews were unwelcome in Eastern Europe after the war. So it's also on the ground in Eastern Europe, a difficult story for people there to remember and to address what actually happened. Um also, it was Stalinism that drove the Jews out of Europe, and it plunged Eastern Europe into a Stalinist deep freeze in which the Holocaust was not discussed. So if you're not discussing the Holocaust, you can't possibly discuss what happened after the Holocaust. And then we have a situation in Israel where when the Holocaust survivors arrived in Israel, they were already yesterday's story. And, uh, and people... People were busy fighting, fighting for the state of Israel. They moved the, the Jewish story had moved on, uh, and nobody wanted to hear what had happened to them. Uh, and so it, it 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 fell through the cracks for for a number of convenient reasons, and also for the survivors themselves. Uh, the survivors themselves were building new lives. They were getting on with their lives. Um, and if you if you actually talk to Holocaust survivors, you'll you'll discover that they were just too busy to sit down and talk about it. And it's actually when they had completed the act of surviving, which is when they had had their families, their children had grown up, they had grandchildren, they had retired, that many survivors actually decide that it's the moment that they're going to talk about it and get involved in Holocaust education because they have actually survived. The job has been done. That was Rosie Whitehouse. The people on the beach... Journeys to Freedom After the Holocaust is out now, published by Hearst. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Helen Chersky will be speaking about how oceans have shaped human history. Music